You're listening to our Great Divorce Podcast, where we walk through one of C.S. Lewis's greatest works and discuss practically what it means for our lives today. This podcast was produced by St. Andrew in Plano, Texas. Theme song you're hearing is Shadow to Sunlight by Micah Peacock. For more information about our church and the different ministries we provide, or to find other podcasts we have produced, we invite you to visit standrewumc.org or join us for worship on Sunday mornings. Well, we are now on the downside of the slope of the Great Divorce. Chapter 9 was the pinnacle that he was going for, and now we kind of skip. We're still going further up and further in. We're still going further up and further in as we get to some of the more in-depth characters. So we've got a really fascinating woman here who is talking about how she actually wants to extend hell. So in the last chapter, there were a number of people who had gone to heaven and they were trying to tell stories about hell to kind of bring and extend hell into heaven. And here we have a particular instance of what that looks like. So this conversation, it says we overheard. There's a female ghost to a bright woman. And he says, that is quite out of the question. I should not dream of staying if I'm expected to meet Robert. I'm ready to forgive him, of course. But how he comes to be here, that is your affair. And then she actually, it's really interesting. The solid person says, if you've forgiven him, surely. And he goes, I forgive him as a Christian. But there are some things one can never forget. And she continues to go on about ingratitude, about sacrifice. And you discover that this woman had nagged her husband to death, right? This is a really fantastic bit because she is so prideful about being a horrid wife. I've heard quite often. As a Christian, I do this, but, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like people, a lot of people I know caveat and me too, like caveat things like that. Like as a Christian, I forgive him, but I really actually hate yeah. him. I think that means in, I know I'm supposed to, but I ain't gonna. Right. I'm going to hang on to that. I'm going to hang on to that. That's actually still a part of my identity. It's a little too close to me. I'll give that to Jesus someday later. And now they're in hell and going, well, I guess it's later and they're still not doing it. Here's how she describes her role. She says, it was I who had to drive him, her husband, every step of the way. He hadn't a spark of ambition. It was like trying to lift a sack of coal. I had to positively nag him to take on that extra work in the other department, although it really was the beginning of everything for him. She like owns, I nagged him, but it was for his own good. I made his life miserable. But wasn't I supposed to? Wasn't that my job to nag him until he was successful? I just can't tell you. I read this passage and I think, what a really nasty wife. Is that your reflection, Forrest? That's exactly my reflection. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness we have better wives. That's right. I think it's really interesting because this chapter describes precisely the level to which we go where it's our agenda instead of someone else's agenda. Right. So this woman clearly wanted to social climb. She clearly wanted to rise up and her husband had no interest in it. Her husband was a perfectly happy soul, except for the fact that he married someone 
who wasn't okay with him being a perfectly happy soul and kept trying to push and prod and all the rest of it. Although on the opposite, I saw a satirical headline today that said, it's got a picture of a guy sitting on a couch and it says, man confused as to why it takes his wife so long to get herself and the three children ready for church in the morning. As he's just sitting yeah, on the couch. just sitting on the couch. <laughs> not helping. Yeah, not helping. Just frustrated that it's taking everybody so long to get ready. Okay, it's Forrest, really it's a very good point. This is not a chapter just about wives, That's right. but about husbands. We, we all participate. We all participate. I was actually having this conversation with Becky recently because there's so many conversations, particularly between spouses, everyone else that you're not covenantally in a relationship with till death do us part, you can kind of deal with it. If they do something funny or whatever, like you can just deal with it and they're not a part of you. But if it's your spouse, you go to bed with them, you wake up with them, you share finances with them. And it's a very different ballgame. When I took on my job as senior pastor here, my wife took on the job of senior pastor. There's no real way to separate that out in a way where others are like, man, Arthur, that's a hard job you got. My wife's like, I got a home with it. I go to bed with it. It's all involved in it. And so how do you navigate your dreams and their dreams and the dreams together without nagging and driving and nuts and all the rest of it? This one was just a particularly nasty example of it. The laziness of men, she says. He said, if you please, he couldn't work more than 13 hours a day. As if I weren't working far longer for my day's work wasn't over when his was. I had to keep him going all evening, if you understand what I mean. He would have just sat in an armchair and done nothing. Actually, my favorite bit about this entire bit and favorites exaggeration is when she distinguished between his old friends who she wanted him to leave because they were no good for him. They were just people he actually enjoyed into people who would actually do something for his social climbing. No, Robert, said I, your friends are now mine. It is my duty to have them here. And she ends up bringing them until she drives his old friends away. And then he gets a new job and new friends. And she's literally finding this entire way of making his life literally a living hell. There's a lot of detail here that I don't know is all that important because I think you get the gist of the type of person. And of course, I began to entertain properly. No more of his sort of friends, thank you. Now I was doing it all for his sake. I do think it's interesting, just as a side note, how often it is that we think we're doing something for someone else when it's actually for us. I think that's an important point here. But this is a particularly yeah, like, like- whenever I clean out the dishwasher or I empty the dishwasher and then it's because, you know, I want to go sit down and watch TV. Like, like what, is, what is my real purpose for what I'm doing? I'm helping my wife so that I can do what I want to do, right? Like there's a, you always need to be suspect of your own motives in marriage and in life and in work and everything else. It's part of being human. But I think it's really fascinating. No more of his sort of friends, thank you. I was doing it all for his sake. Like how often it is we think we can actually do something and convince ourselves, lie to ourselves that it's actually for us. So this passage, there's such detail here and such difficulty here that it's not really particular to the point of the story. I think Lewis decided he would just go deep and do a deep dive into a marriage that has gone so bad that the wife is in hell and then is still complaining about how her husband never achieved after she nagged him to death. In the end, she has this really fascinating deal. So there's no solid person talk here at all. It is literally the ramblings of this woman who was a horrible wife. Had, had a little bit of grumble in her. Had a lot of grumble <laughs> in her. Maybe she wasn't even grumbling. She was pretty much a grumble at that point. And I think the entire point of this chapter is this one right here. 
the beginning of the chapter, she starts with, I don't want to see Robert. And then it ends with, oh, I don't know. I believe I've changed my mind. I will make them a fair offer, Hilda. I will not meet him if it means just meeting him and no more. But if I'm given a free hand, I will take charge of him again. With all the time one would have here, I believe I could still make something of him. Her husband, who she nagged to death, is in heaven. And she's sitting there going, you know what? I really could do something better with him than this. If only I had a free hand, I would take control of him again. It's a reminder that all those details and all that past, the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is, what are our motives in all the things that we do for our spouses, for our kids? What are our motives? I mean, I really think that's where this question comes down to. And I think this is one of my questions for you, Forrest, is would this have been a more powerful chapter if he had chosen a less horrible wife? (laughs) like if he had like you've often told me that preachers get it wrong when they like always choose mother Teresa or hitler they're either so good you can't really compare or so bad that you're never going to be that bad and like this woman seems like one of the worst of wives would this chapter have been better if he had chosen kind of a standard wife who was decent but not quite as horrible as this one i was thinking the amount of detail he put in this one i think we could all find one of those things And I wonder if that's what he was throwing the, like it was a spaghetti at the wall of all the things, all the grumbles you could be as a spouse or a friend or in a relationship. And I think there's not one person that could read that and think, I haven't done any of that. I haven't thought any of that. And I think that's, that might, might've been his approach at this because other stuff leading up is a lot more high level. So people might've, might've missed here or there, but it's pretty much nails every one of us some, in some way, this lucky Lucky chap just found a lady that had it all. <laughs> <laughs> that had the whole bag. Let's continue on to chapter 11 today. Chapter 11 is a, the same exact conversation, except it's about a mother and her son, where the mother and her son, Michael, is in heaven, her son, and she just wanted to control him. She just wanted to, in the same way the wife wanted to control her husband, the mother wanted to be with her son in a very real way. And as you're listening to this, remember like back to chapter nine, when people could just choose joy, they could just choose it. That wife could have chosen joy in 10. This mother could choose joy because you're listening to it. It's a choice we all have. Well, and this is a particularly sad one because Michael, clearly the the son died early. This is a tragic scenario. So it's different than like a husband and wife where they chose each other. This is about someone who lost her son and never got over it but wanted in the end to always have relationship with her son. And so she's kind of begging to go see her son who she lost. And they're like, you can go, but he can't see you yet. So this is really where in chapter nine, there was a piece about uh, how far the solid people would come. And it's a really fascinating storyline because he says that the solid people have come so far from high up in heaven where they have traveled a great distance just to meet these people, where they've been trained to actually see the ghosts. Like most people are so solid, the ghosts are nothing. They just see through them. And just to clarify my people have the option to choose joy, I'm right there with everybody that there's moments like what you're about to read where the idea of even choosing joy is so hard to comprehend. Mm -hmm. And the guy goes, you can go see him, but you need to be solid enough for Michael to actually perceive you. You need to take a step. This is a chapter where you start to wonder. So you clearly have the wife in the last chapter who misunderstood like what a wife is supposed to be. 
And this is one where the mother defined herself to a large extent as too much of a mother. Here he says, you are treating God as only a means to Michael, but the whole thickening treatment, like the process towards heaven, consists in learning to want God for his own sake. And the response is, you wouldn't talk like that if you were a mother. And the response from the solid person is, you mean if I were only a mother? But there's no such thing as being only a mother. You exist as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature. When we talk about marriage or we talk about parenting or we talk about our roles in life or our responsibilities or our jobs, the difficulty is when those take over as the only identity in our lives. Like as I'm only a father or I'm only a pastor or I'm only a man. When really the primary thing when you get to the realness of God is that God is real. God is actually the one who should orient us. And our marriage is better when we try to serve God. And our relationship with our kids is better when we try to serve God as well. I will say there's a bit of this chapter that I don't like, and this is my only critique really in the entire book of The Great Divorce, is this phrase right here. Because Michael must have died early or something at some point, and it says he had to take Michael away partly for Michael's sake. And I don't believe that's how God does it. Like, that's my only bit of this, where in case you're listening to this and you're kind of you know thinking about the things that we've lost in life, and I don't believe that God actually chooses for us to die early or any of the rest of that. I believe that's a consequence of the brokenness in which our world lives. I do fully believe that we have to hold lightly to all of our roles as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as whatever it is, because God is actually our primary responsibility and nothing else. It says human beings can't make one another really happy for long. And I do believe that that's where we get in trouble, is in our marriages, or our relationship with our kids, or our relationship with our parents, or whatever it is. If the entire thing is the assumption that being their parent, being their child, being their friend is all there is, and I don't need anything else but that. That is absolutely not true. And that's why I love this chapter, but I also, that one phrase I don't yeah. like, but the rest of the chapter I really do. What's interesting is the idea of knowing love that he talks about right after this. And he talks about how God wants her to love Michael how she loves God, which is like this whole different level of love that they're asking her. Like that's what going further up and further in is choosing that. And it's interesting talking about children that, as you know, with two young kids, I remember when you were about to have Sam, your oldest, I was telling you, you're about to experience something that you didn't know existed. You're going to realize that you never really understood how your parents loved you. You didn't realize that kind of love existed before you have a kid. You have a child and, you know, adopt a child or whatever. There's this different relationship you have with a kid than you would have with any other thing on the planet. And it's this very unique type of love that you realize, wait, the only love I thought existed was how I love my parents or how I love my my wife or my husband or my friends or whatever. Like those are the kinds of love. But then you have a kid and you realize, wow, there's this whole different level of love. And then you start realizing, you know, it opens your mind up to even what this book's talking about, about how you could love God. And I think that's what he's trying to get across. Once you understand this next level of love, then you're going to be able to love Michael even, even more, even more. Like it's, you don't even, I can't even explain it to you. You just have to come with me. But if you don't go far enough, if you love them just enough for what you get out of it, as opposed to that higher level of love, you're never going to get there. And that's really where she goes, you're mistaken. 
Uh, my love for Michael would never have gone bad, not if we lived together for a million years. And uh, this is why I think Lewis set up chapters one through eight was the setup for comments like this. You are mistaken, and you must know. Haven't you met down there in Greytown mothers who have their sons with them in hell? Does their love make them happy? Like, it's a really interesting question of like, would you rather be in hell with someone with someone you love? The truth is that wouldn't actually be real love. You would just want it because of that possessiveness, because that's how you define yourself. And she ends up going, well, no, but I would never have been like that. There was this difficulty of this story, and we're going to end after this story, so we're not going to get all the way through chapter 11, but we're going to end with this story. God is trying to get us to a better kind of love, and a lot of what we describe as love on earth is not actually love. It's actually a broken sort of thing. Because often our description of love is such a selfish version of it that it's not actually the real thing. And you can see it because it doesn't overflow. True love actually ought to overflow into others, actually ought to make everybody better. And the story we find out about this mother is that she actually didn't love her husband or her daughter, that actually all her love was for the memory of this son that she didn't even love all that well when he was on earth. It was just the idea of love, but not actually love itself. And that difficulty of a marriage or a family or a husband or a wife or parenting or whatever it is, the point of these two stories back to back is to make ourselves ask the question, am I doing the things for my marriage so that I feel good or for actual selfless love? Because there's this phrase, so the mom is describing the solid person is trying to get the mom to repent, to choose a different way. And he goes, there's no need to pretend that everyone was right. We can go on living. Like there's a great joke here. Just give up all of that baggage in the past and just enjoy. And she goes, how dare you laugh about it? Give me my boy. Do you hear? I don't care about all your rules and regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one had the right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that face to face. I want my boy and I mean to have him. He is mine, do you understand? Mine, mine, mine forever and ever. He will be, Pam. Everything will be yours. God himself will be yours, but not that way. Nothing can be yours by nature. By the way, because Lewis was really good friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, that phrase of mine, mine, mine forevermore reminds me of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. You just crave something. She saw her son as an object, not a soul, as something to possess rather than something to love, which is exactly how the wife talked about it in the prior chapter. One of the things that I do believe has happened in our world is we don't really sanctify marriage like we used to. Like, I think we used to put marriage up on a pedestal. We know so many marriages that have fallen apart that it's really hard to do that. We have done that for children. Like, think, well, I possess them. I control them. They're mine. When the reality is they can be yours, but only if you actually worship God first. They can be yours because true love will be reciprocal. But if you try to possess it, there was a song when I was little. So this is, I think, how we'll end today. But there's a song that was little that my dad always used to love. And I don't know, it's some like old Christmas English British song. But it is, love is something. If you give it away, give it away, give it away. Love is something. If you give it away, if you'll end up having more. And it says, love is like a magic penny where you hold it tight, you won't have any. But if you lend it, spend it, you'll have so many, it'll roll over the floor. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't ever sing again on this podcast. But that really is this moment of love. Or you, or you could use, I want to know what love is. <laughs> sure. I think that's a better one, Forrest. want you to show me. <laughs> oh, that's, that, what my, that's what my dad used to sing to me. <laughs> is that what he used to sing to you? No, he didn't. But. 
I think the point of this entire two stories back to back is to talk about what real love is, which is selfless and not possessive. And whether it's husband and wife, parent, child, God wants something better than just a selfish love because that's never actually going to satisfy. Love is something if you give it away, give it away, give it away. Love is something if you 